a Lifetime Original Podcast. Hello, dear reader. We've all heard a tap, tap, tapping on our walls at night or a creaky floorboard down the hall and thought, is my house haunted? We've passed by neon signs offering palm readings and fortune tellings, and maybe some of you have gotten curious enough to push through those beaded curtains and hear what the future might hold. Maybe you're a believer. Maybe you're a skeptic. There are a lot of people out there who claim to have a connection with the beyond. But if you listened to our last episode, you know that some of them are straight-up liars. They're con artists. And that, that really got us wondering... Is spiritualism one big con? Or is there more to this world? Today, we're going to get some answers from the incredible Tori Telfer. She's the author of Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History, and Confident Women, Swindlers, Grifters, and Shapeshifters of the Feminine Persuasion. Tori is a fantastic writer on true crime, and as you're about to find out, she's a woman after my own heart. I'll be honest, I've got a huge friend crush on her. So, without further ado, here's our conversation with Tori Telfer. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are so excited Tori. to talk to you. <laughs> we are so, so excited. I was only angry that I received your book um, last night. So I'm halfway through it, but I was asked to read a chapter and frankly, I could not stop myself. My husband was like, it's midnight, go to, to, bed. go to bed. And I couldn't stop oh, reading it. That's the best compliment you could give me. Thank you. <laughs> I think we have some similar interests, I'll say. Mm-hmm. Um, and also some similar senses of humor. I'll pat myself oh, on the back and okay. say. Um, <laughs> Quinn is just angling to be your best friend. Is really I am. Is. I have a secret agenda, and the agenda is friendship. Um, <gasps> How diabolical. I know. I know. Can, what a confident woman you are, Quinn. Ooh, thank this you. This is a con artistry, and it's in work right now, in action. <laughs> Yes, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see if I get you, Tori. Tori, could you please introduce yourself to our audience and tell them um, who you are and why I have a friend crush on you? Oh, sure, sure. I'm Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer and podcaster, and I've written a book about female serial killers and female con artists, which is what we're here to discuss today. I usually write about women who have done, who have committed crimes. (laughs) That's my beat. We love that beat. Obviously, we are fans of that as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the questions I love asking people who are interested and who participate in sort of contributing to true crime, what made you interested in true crime in general and more specifically in women, right? What was it that drew you to both of those topics? 
I really backed into this topic. Honestly, I was not a kid who was into this or, um, you know, just an obsessive like a lot of people in this space are. I, when I was just starting out as a freelance writer, I learned about this female serial killer from Hungary in the 1500s. And I was like, there are female serial killers? What? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that was, that was honestly the start of everything. I pitched an article that turned into my book that turned into my beat. I, why I focus on women, I mean, their stories are just not as well known, like male criminal, male con artists and male serial killers are household names, or as we have the women, not so much. Um, so there's that, you know, it's uh, on a cynical level. It's like there's just more of a market for those stories. Well, you know what? I take that back. That's actually not true. <laughs> there's still a huge market for like, oh, I don't know, projects about Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> and, you know, so so I take that back. The market is weird. It's like people do want to hear these untold stories, but at the same time, they don't really want to invest money in them because the men still sell the totally. movies. And, and the we've talked about it, too, of like, you know what? We want equity, and that means mm-hmm. highlighting <laughs> female criminals. Like, give yeah. female criminals the spotlight. <laughs> Here we are. Well, sure. And speaking of equity, I guess, um, there's lots of kinds of con artists out there. Mm-hmm. The one that we're particularly talking about zooming in focus today are con artists that specialize in spiritualism. So could you talk to us a little bit about what spiritualism is and how women used it to their benefit? Sure. Spiritualism is a religion, a movement, and it's a funny one because we know for a fact that it was started on a con. That being said, like, is every element of it fake? I don't, I I, I can't say, you know, it involves speaking to the dead, it involves the afterlife, and what human can truly know what's real there. But we know that it started with the explicit con by two young girls, Kate and Maggie Fox. In 1848, they basically tricked their mom into thinking there was a ghost in the house (laughs) by doing these (laughs) rapping noises, you know, um, like, I don't know if you can hear that, but um, you're like, oh, mother, like (gasps) the ghost is talking to us. Yes. And their mother was very gullible. And it is incredible how this trick that any one of us could have played on a relative at age 12 truly snowballed into neighbors coming by to hear from the ghost, um, the girls starting to make money from it, and then other women and men across the country being like, oh, actually, like, I too am hearing rappings from the ghost, or like, oh, sorry, I'm saying ghost, I guess I should say spirit, Um, but it turned into this big business where people would pay to attend a seance, to hear from, you know, their dead husband, And there was just so much fraud in this industry. Some of it was very sinister and even dangerous. And some of it was deeply hilarious, like women dancing around under bed sheets and someone (laughs) flipping on the lights and being like, uh, it's you. (laughs) Like, I can see you. (laughs) We did just cover Mary Ann Scannell. So we're sort of talking about her, obviously, with you as you are an expert on her case as well. And she's someone who never recanted her views, right? Never. Uh, Um, Can you give a little brief uh, blurb reminder about who Mary Ann Scannell is? Oh, my girl, Mary Ann. So Marianne was a little dairy farm girl at the end of the 1800s in Rhode Island. Um, She was Irish-American. And she, how I picture her becoming a medium is she, you know, I, I suspect she looked around. She saw that this was trending. 
you know, truly trending. And she was like, oh, I can do that. So she starts hearing those signature wrappings, which indicate that there's a spirit about and pretty quickly using them to her advantage. You know, she's basically just going around saying, like, the spirits want me to have that thing that you have that I want. And her career snowballed from there. And she she moved to Brooklyn. She became the pastor of a church. And she ended up managing to snag Vanderbilt's husband and getting his money. But, you know, his grown kids dragged her to court for that. And that, that kind of wrecked her reputation. She never really got to live the high life as a Vanderbilt. Um, but she did achieve a lot of material success not just for a woman, but for a, you know, an Irish farm girl from Rhode Island. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure her prospects were not great before she, you know, I, I, I imagine her parents weren't like, our daughter's going to marry a Vanderbilt. <laughs> you know, you find yourself sometimes rooting for these women, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. some ways. And I think in reading your book, too, there, there was a little bit of, like, redemption in these stories of like women using it as a way to sort of further their career to make money in a time where women didn't have many rights. But it was really hard to get on board with Marianne Scannell. I'm going to be honest with you. It <laughs> felt really hard to root for was her. Was it the home wrecking? What was it? What? You know, it was the home wrecking and then like leaving to me. It was yeah. her being like, I would like your husband. I want this white dress. I got it. I'm leaving. It was. I'm gone. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. I know. She's, she's just such a character. That's why I have a soft spot for her. Like, she's so blatant. She's so selfish. Yeah. She's like, Give me oh, that hot spirit, nephew. Yeah. The spirits want me to marry your nephew. Like, I don't know why you're looking at me weird. The spirits want it. Right. So when you talk about sort of uh, having a soft spot for her, is that because you – you see more than just this sort of home wrecker. You see maybe a marginalized woman trying to have a semi-decent life. Yes and no. Like, I don't want to glorify her. Of course, there's plenty of marginalized women trying to have a semi-decent life that didn't <laughs> commit crimes. <laughs> so it's like we don't need her to be our our prime example of that, of course. But um, it's it's just, it's like... Yeah, I, I see someone supremely confident, as the title of my book <laughs> is, and um, just, I'm trying to think of another word other than ballsy, but that's the word I want, is just, you know, just incredibly uh, bold, and there's always something to me that's not necessarily admirable in that, but just fascinating, like, I do not have the courage to do what Marianne Scannell did. Oh, my God. We'd be so successful. All three of us. We'd be killing it if we we'd were. We'd be killing it. <laughs> I know. The times I should have used her energy to negotiate a higher rate, <gasps> I could <laughs> kick myself. <laughs> so it's like we can learn from this woman, but we could still yeah. hold her in the rightful place, which is she's a criminal. She was a con yeah. woman. Right, right, right. Yeah, we don't need to, like, redeem her story or anything like that, you know. I know, but at the same time, like, I mean, in the late 1800s, women didn't have any rights in this spiritualism movement that, like, predominantly was women, right? Well, I was trying to find that out. I I don't think that I could officially say it was predominantly women. There were a lot of male spiritualists. But it was certainly one notable thing about it. It was so perfect for women, because the aesthetics were so feminine, you know, mm-hmm. it was easy, I imagine, easy to be a woman in it. And it was sort of 
okay, even encouraged to be all these cliches of femininity, even things that might have been otherwise considered negative. Like, this isn't my idea. I cite an academic in the book who says this, but it's like the idea at the time was that women, period, were sort of vessels not like full people, but just like vessels to be filled with whatever. We don't like that, right? But in spiritualism, that's perfect. Oh, I'm a vessel for the spirits, so give me all your money. So do you see what I mean? It, it was this bizarrely suited for women, despite all the negative cliches about what being a woman was at the time. That sounds so paradoxical because mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's I remember that quote from your, your book about them being passive channels mm-hmm. for the spirits to talk mm-hmm. through. And it's, it's so sort of um, sexist and mm-hmm. awful to read that. But then paradoxically, what you have are people saying, okay, use me for that. And then actually, they're the ones taking advantage and in fact, liberating themselves mm-hmm. uh, from gender oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like, it, or at least that was an option available to them if they wanted to, if they had an agenda. And like I say in the book, a lot of these mediums did have, they were very progressive politically. And it was kind of this weirdly safe way to be progressive because you could be like, oh, well, the spirits um, are actually, I'm like going to lecture on abolition. But it's, you can't get mad at me because that's what the spirits want you all to know. So it was this cool loophole that could be used for good. Again, was often not. I, you know what, it's funny. I actually went on a date on Monday and the guy kind of was like, women are magical in a vessel. So it's great to know that Wait, this is an no. idea that perpetuates all times. He said vessel? He didn't say vessel, but he's like, oh. women are magic. It's like that, like, it's that benevolent uh, sexism that we run into yeah. time and time again, where it's like, this mystery, this mystique, this feminine mystique that we discuss often. Unfortunately, it's oh, still pervasive today. I'm so sorry. He probably thought you were going to be so impressed. Like, oh, thank you. Like, <laughs> I don't need I to be magic. I need to sprite. be real and I need I respect. But and I need like, to swipe left. <laughs> and I need to swipe left <laughs> in real life. Um, if I could, I would have been like, the ghosts are making me leave. But I, I didn't have the confidence to do so. In your book, you talk a lot about, which I thought was so interesting, that never really came to mind was this idea of like the rise of science and the rejection of religion making way for these the spiritualist movement and i'm wondering if like you mm-hmm. see that parallel now or if there's any <gasps> sort of i'm so glad you asked that because i just was i was like goop this is where we bring in goop <laughs> this is where we bring in <laughs> gwyneth paltrow <laughs> gwyneth? gwyneth are you listening <laughs> um, no, I think there's so many parallels. So 1848, big year, like gold rush. We're building things out of steel, you know, big buildings, like we're rejecting religion and we're embracing science. And that leaves people with a hole in their heart sometimes. You know, it's like, okay, like I don't just, I can't of just like. Right. On Sunday, do I want to just like hug this train track? It's like fast <laughs> speed train. No, I need more meaning. <laughs> so they turn to the spiritualists. Um, today, I mean, I kind of wonder if we're, if we're undergoing a similar thing with like, I'm just going to throw a bunch of terms at the wall. I haven't researched this, but you know, like an- the anti-vax movement, like the super crunchy kind of like rich white lady pipeline where it's like, it starts with stuff that like I'm into too, like 
I like used cloth diapers on my first baby. And, you know, it's like it starts with that where we're all kind of like, yeah, we don't really trust all these big corporations running the world. Like we do want something more close to the earth, more meaningful. And then it just slides into chaos and chemtrails and polio coming back and like Gwyneth Paltrow's bizarre product. Anti-vampire psychic spray. Anti-vampire serum. You're like, listen, I like a matcha latte too, but vampire serum is one bridge too far. Too far. Too too far. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if it's fair to like lump all these things in the same bucket. (laughs) We won't quote you on that. I mean, I'm curious, too, because I think when we I mean, obviously, we're talking about Marianne Scannell, who is sort of like, you know, in the spiritual was a con artist. And I think Mm -hmm, there is mm -hmm. also a current obsession with these con artists. Right. Especially women like we have Elizabeth Mm -hmm. Holmes. We have Anna Delvey. Right. I mean, I think that like wanting to believe something big is pulling people towards that. So I guess the question I guess we had posed was Mm -hmm. were people in the 18 or 1900s more gullible than we are today? But I don't, I, yeah, I'm curious your opinion on that or your thoughts on that. I don't think so. I mean, of course, we have more technology. We have more science. You know, they believe things that we now know aren't true. But no, I think humans have always been the same amount of gullible and trusting. And um, I think it's probably just really hard to see when you're in your own era. Who knows what we're believing right now that's going to turn out to be wrong? And this is, of course, how conspiracy theorists get you, because (laughs) I think it is totally normal to have some doubt and distrust, especially towards these huge, powerful forces that are running our lives. Um, But that's another rant. We can rant about Facebook another time. (laughs) So um, would, would you call yourself a skeptic, a healthy skeptic? I would call myself a vacillator. Like, I go back and forth. I sometimes find myself sliding too much into, like, skepticism, which turns into, like, everyone's out to get me. Sometimes I swing more towards the belief end of things. I don't mm-hmm. know. I just feel like th- me, there's so much we can't know. So I'm I'm terrified to say firmly, you know, one thing or another. Even, like, the dead cannot talk to us like no human has ever communed with the dead like I don't know I don't I can't say that even though I know for a fact that the women in my book were were frauds I still can't tell you every spiritualist medium was a total fraud you know it's fun to be a believer too like in many things like I feel like opening those doors um leaves room for more whimsy in a way yeah, yeah and it's totally. hard to be somebody especially after you have children right that like mm, shuts yeah. down whimsy yeah where do you stand on telling your kids santa is a thing <laughs> i don't know your religion but my husband and i argue about that a lot okay okay <laughs> i was never i don't remember as a kid ever like traumatically discovering he wasn't real so i suspect my parents did like a a soft launch a of soft santa. launch of santa <laughs> so i think that's what i want to do like i'm you know and kind of follow my son's leads um but I haven't they're they're three and nine months so I feel like I have a little time till I have to come down hard on the question of Santa I'll give you a tip I'll give you a tip on it my mine are five and two and my husband starts the sentences off with some say (laughs) wait so wait between you two as not as a non-mom, can we get a can we get opinion from both of you? Is Santa a grifter? Is Santa a con man? 
hot take. Whoa. Hmm. I listen, I don't that. have kids. I can't speak to it. Wow. So I would be curious your thoughts. Is Santa a con man? He's watching you. <laughs> He's always watching. We're in a police state. No, but I guess my question <laughs> I have for you, that elf on a shelf, I don't trust him. I don't no. want him near. I don't no. want someone telling on my kids. I don't like it. I want honesty. <laughs> um, I guess my question is, is like, with these spiritualists, I think what's a challenging conversation about them too is I do think that they did, people felt genuinely heard and seen mm-hmm. and their grief mm-hmm. felt like there was a reprieve from from yes. grief. Like when we talk about Marianne Scannell, you know, and Edward Ward Vanderbilt, which mm-hmm. we kept calling him Edward Ward, um, <laughs> it's like he clearly got something from this from this transaction yeah, yeah. and while we know she's a con woman because she just was yeah. um i mean it's a delicate it's a delicate conversation of crime because people are genuinely benefiting and some mm. some sort of having getting some sort of emotional transaction so like what is the line for you i guess between spiritualist or, and criminal yeah um that's a great point yeah because they did provide so much solace and i think it's Like, if you imagine what it would be like to be, um, you know, a widow after the Civil War or, you know, uh, spiritualism peaked again after the World Wars for the exact same terrible reason, tons and tons of dead people, (laughs) you know, tons of grieving people. If you just imagine yourself in those people's shoes and then imagine someone offering to tell you, you know, your loved one has a message. Like, I would a thousand percent believe and I would not care (laughs) how griftery the person was. It's just like, yes, give it to me. Like, talk to me from beyond. So where's the line? I mean, I guess when you get into material damage of some sort, like taking, not just taking money, because, you know, a a certain amount of (laughs) money is involved in these transactions and I don't think affected people, but taking life savings, taking houses, um, then that's obviously a crime. And, you know, I have one spiritualist in my book who got super dark to the point where she and her husband were abusing vulnerable young women. And, you know, that was obviously horrible and a very explicit crime, which they did jail time for. So, I think the line, you know, the line is probably kind of where the law would say it is (laughs) when you're getting into fraud, when you're getting into assault, God forbid, and things like that. But I think there's also a a huge gray area in between the official crimes and the people who maybe, like the mediums who maybe fully believe their own, what they're saying. Um, You know, like the medium who knows she's fake but is giving comfort. Yeah. To me that's that's gray area. I wouldn't call her a criminal, but I also wouldn't call her like a, a totally non-criminal person. Right. It's like therapy in some way, I think. Yeah. Some, you know, I mean like it's like a weird version of grief counseling. Yeah. Yeah, they they are getting talk therapy out of it. There yeah, is an actual true. something they get. And yeah. in the case of Marianne Scannell, it's like this guy lived with her a number of years and she died his wife mm-hmm. you know like yeah. we don't know what that marriage was like yeah. but that guy was like see told you yeah. she didn't leave me <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he seemed happy with it I know that story was so hard too because it was like his daughter his daughter obviously sued him saying he, mm-hmm. he was unfit of unfit mind mm-hmm. and so the relationship between him and his family was completely screwed over it it was hard to feel 
I guess what I'm trying to say is it was it was really hard to figure out who to feel most sorry for. I mean, the easiest part. No, yeah. it wasn't hard to feel most sorry for. It was clearly Edward Ward Vanderbilt who was the victim of that crime. Um, but like, yeah, it was it. Yeah, it was just a really sad story, honestly, of like a family being torn apart by this woman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can only imagine how horrified his adult children were when it's like, my stepmom is going to be who? Pastor Marianne Scannell of the Brooklyn Church of Spiritualists? Or whatever. Her, the Brooklyn whatever Banshees? Her oh my god, her <laughs> name just kept getting that longer title. and longer so and ridiculous. longer. <laughs> Which you, you'd think that would be the first clue. You, you'd think that yeah. would be the first clue. And right. She changed her name to May, but kept going by Marianne to like personal <laughs> friends, like Edward, you know? Personal I love friends. that for her. She just kept like, I guess, what is your favorite? I mean, you talk a lot about like the ectoplasm in... Ugh. Oh my God, that was the reading that. That is not that, my favorite. That is not my right. Favorite. That was, and I think also, I mean, I please, you have to read this book. Whoever's listening, read the book. Um, but like, I think there was also, we talked a bit earlier about this like feminine mystique, and it was like nobody knew anything about women's bodies or anything. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> these women were able to just like <sighs> use this like mystery, this lack of knowledge, this like vessel ideology to just do whatever they wanted. Yeah. Kind of amazing. Yeah. I got to give some of... credit where credit is due in that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And think of the innovations, the hollow legged <laughs> tables that levitated, the cheesecloth that they vomited up and pretended it was ectoplasm. I mean, <laughs> this was this industry was disrupting. Let's just say that. <laughs> and it did not help with sex education. And no. it, it probably set no. us back. In fact, no. you know, no. people are pulling rabbits out of hats and saying it's the clitoris. It's a problem, you know? <laughs> They're like, look what I have here. I mean, very, very ridiculous stuff. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is there any anecdotal stuff about spiritualism, any sort of a story that comes to mind for you that's one of your favorites as far as especially looking at these very silly uh, ways of proving yourself to skeptics? 
Oh gosh, um, I, I my favorite ones are the ones where they're exposed. It's so it's the opposite. There's just something about a grown up <laughs> being like. The lights come on and the grown-up is dancing around the room under the bedsheet. I know I already talked about that one, but that's my favorite. I think her name was Elsie Reynolds. She she was conning this banker, and he got suspicious. <laughs> and so he, he – I forget if it was him who turned on the lights or if, uh, someone he hired, but he waited till the peak of her ritual when the, the spirit itself emerged – a white <laughs> mystical figure, and then he just turns on the lights, and it's a grown woman <laughs> dancing under a bedsheet. Like it's so bad, but it's so good. God, to be a fly, to be frankly, to, to be, be a spirit oh, in the room, to be, a, to be spirit. a spirit in the corner, to be a spirit to just in the be corner. like. I would love it if spirits are real in that story. Yes. I want to see it from the spirit perspective, like being in the room, and like this woman is claiming that I'm here. I am, but she's not talking to me. I am, but I'm I don't look like that. But yeah. I do not I look she. like that. Am I dance, is, I don't dance like that. <laughs> that is not how I move. Frankly, this is offensive <laughs> to me. I am Insulting. offended. Says says the spirit in the corner. Yes. <laughs> so I was just curious. What are some of your favorite spiritualists? I mean, we've covered some of them, but are there any more notable ones? So there's this other woman in my book who I love. She was a spiritualist second, I'll say, and just a entrepreneur first. Her name that she gave herself was Fufu Tom. That was not her given name. But she was this black woman who lived in Harlem in the 1930s, like Great Depression era. So this is another big thing that's making people turn to spiritualists, obviously. And she she kind of built this empire for herself selling, you know, holy water and incense and candles. And she had all these ads in the paper. It was all just very... Even though, you know, you could say that the the heart of it was untrue, maybe. Like, is her holy incense candle water going to bring you riches? Like, probably not. And she's selling it to people who are really desperate. So that's actually kind of sad. But everything else was very, like, hustle culture like we see today. You know, our friends who are, like, posting on Instagram and using the right hashtags and trying to build their following. Like, that was her. But the most amazing part of her story is she got tangled up in this love triangle between a male grifter <laughs> who <laughs> kind of styled himself oh, gosh it's so complicated he he, uh, he he did a lot of great things for the black community too he was like a uh, like a labor like union organizer and also like this weird spiritualist leader who would wear turbans and waltz around saying he was born in Egypt under a pyramid, et cetera, et cetera, called himself Sufi. Like, none of that was true either. Um, they fell in love. He was married to another woman who was basically like a, a lady gangster <laughs> who went <laughs> head-to-head with the Italian mafia and won. <laughs> so Fufu Tom gets in the middle of these two there's a like a shooting match where the original wife like tries to shoot Sufi three times and then goes to jail for it. Fu sweeps in, marries him, and then her then husband Sufi buys a plane, says he's going to fly to Egypt, dies in a plane crash like on the first flight. So then she is now his widow, like his famous widow, and she kind of 
not in a creepy way, but she does kind of use that as a stepping stone to further fame and power. Um, she gives interviews where she says that she's going out to a field and laying on a bed of ice and he's visiting her and talking to her. She kind of leads the temple that he's started to build. And for all I can tell, you know, kind of lives a long, successful life, dies in her 70s or 80s with her little ads still in the paper, you know, selling her oils. So it, I think it's a really amazing story for, a, for, for anyone to live that type of life. Um, but for a black woman from Harlem in the 1930s, like who's just come through the Great Depression to reach the point where she's the celebrated widow of another mystic slash grifter is just notable. Yeah, it's an incredible story. Absolutely. And just to use it, I know we keep harping on it, but like, especially at a time when women didn't have the same rights, let alone, you know, a woman of color didn't have the same rights to be using spiritualism as a way to sort of further yourself. It's like, those are the stories you root for where Marianne Scannell, I I really, (laughs) again, it's hard to root for. She's not your girl. She's not my girl. No, I like, I even feel for the Fox sisters, frankly, like, because I (laughs) think they just like... They were kids, right? And it's like... Yeah. You know what the Fox sisters were like? It's just occurring to me. They were like Disney child stars. Like, <gasps> right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You're talking that, to a Disney adult, Just not me. relax. Quinn, relax. <gasps> Quinn likes to make fun of me so, for being a Disney I, adult. Are you a Disney adult? Disney adult. Wait, what's a Disney adult? No, you're not a Disney adult, and I'm not either. Not Don't one. do this to me, Did Quinn. Did you perform? What is this? No, a it's Disney It's way sadder Disney than what you're picturing. <laughs> I'm worried I've offended you. No, you have star, not. You're a former child star. No, I'm not a former. No, a Disney adult is someone, you know them, you've seen them around. They are spiritualist in their own ways. They're the most gullible because they believe Disney's real life. <laughs> oh, like, they're probably they, would be okay, the, okay. they would be the marks for, I think, spiritualists, okay. in my opinion. Okay. Um, but they're people that, like, don't save up to go to Europe. They save up to go to Disney every year. They, okay. like, live out, mm-hmm. outside of Florida, and they still have a season pass to oh. Disney World. That's a Disney adult. Like, someone <laughs> who, like... <laughs> I am not a Disney adult, a, okay? Are you on the path? No. <laughs> am I on the path? The righteous path to Walt Disneyland. <laughs> we love. That's like, I listen, do I know a lot of Disney songs? Yeah. That's not a crime. Thank you. Here we are talking about criminals, Quinn. I feel like I'm, who's on defense here? Me or Marianne no. Scannell? Because I feel who's like it's trial? me. Oh. Who's on trial? <laughs> yeah. Disney Gosh. adult trial. This is going to be. Guilty as charged. This is um. going to be used against me in public opinion in the future. No, but I think you were going to ask a good question, which is, uh, speaking of the Fox sisters, basically, and, and you comparing them to the child star, it's, it's do you yeah. think that when it blew up, what do you think the feeling was there when they became adults and saw this craze that they had started? How do you think they felt? Oh, I think, I, I know it was horrible for them, you know, because they've told journalists that. I think that's the most poignant and amazing part of their story and that's why I feel confident saying that spiritualism was started on a fraud because yes when they were in their 40s 50s um just totally burnt out by this industry they had become alcoholics because basically from a very young age people were sending them just cases of champagne and things like that they yeah they took it all back and they were like we did it by cracking the joints in our toes 
one of them, Kate, got up on stage and lifted up her skirts and showed everyone how she did it. It was so bizarre and silly and sad. And, I mean, just imagine being in the audience and this woman is, like, cracking her toes and telling you that this whole movement is based on that. And they both expressed a lot of guilt for their victims because they knew it was a fraud all along. And, you know, they're in these rooms with these weeping widows and et cetera. And like one of them has a quote that's like she would before every seance, she would mutter like you are driving me into hell or something. So just really heartbreaking. And and one of the quotes that moves me the most of almost anything in my book is from Maggie, the older of the two performing sisters. She said she told a journalist that she would go to graveyards and like sit on the tombstones and she she was so trying so hard to see if the dead would actually talk to her that she would oh. hang out in graveyards oh. um and she says you know nothing um like she, she never got anything but she she tried so hard to make it true yeah that would be like the only escape is this thing really i can if i can make it happen then i yeah. didn't tell all these lies and i'm forgiven yeah. yes so yes. sad so sad they were haunted I, which is kind of ironic they were yeah. haunted by it do you think that there were people that started with the con who then believed it to be the truth you know that's an interesting question about con women in general like elizabeth holmes i feel like is a is a good example of seemed to believe herself, maybe mm-hmm. still does. Um, so, yeah, probably. Um, n- no one that immediately comes to mind. But I think, I do think there is a type of con artist that just convinces themselves. Tori, you say something in your book that I loved, and I wrote it down, and I'm going to get it tattooed, um, which is that <laughs> naked selfishness is delicious. And I just I love that. that quote. What a great poll quote. You did. You said you. that. <laughs> I have no memory of that. But I believe you. Well, you, you should get the tattoo as well, and yeah, then I you'll should. never forget. forget. Well, I wrote that down and I loved it. And I wanted to sort of, um, we've been really, you know, hyper-focused on spiritualism and we can definitely uh, widen that lens to con women in general, because I just wanted to hear from you. One of the most delicious con women stories across the board. Okay. Okay. Um, well, can I just tell you about Bonnie Lee Bakley? It's such yes. a juicy story, but very tragic. Delicious oh, and juicy. You know? anytime, anytime a story is related to food, has the same yes. you know adjectives as food, I'm sold. I'm in. It's meaty, <laughs> juicy, delicious. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so this was a huge tabloid story. Does her name ring a bell for you? I think she was probably a little bit before our, our time when we were reading tabloids, but Basically, Bonnie Lee was this, you know, very poor white girl from an abusive family, grew up with her grandma in a trailer, didn't have enough water to wash her hair, went to school with her hair greasy, got teased by it, was like, I'm going to show you all someday. I'm going to marry a a celebrity. Became like a capital G groupie. (laughs) Like, one of my favorite things she did was climbed over the walls of Graceland <laughs> to try to be like Elvis, <laughs> got, you know, got pulled back down by the security guards. Unfazed, she prints up posters referring to herself as Elvis Presley's former girlfriend. Like a real entrepreneurial type, you're probably sensing a thread in this book. You know, uh, she had this 
this hardworking, creative entrepreneurial streak that she just never applied to anything legitimate because she probably could have been a CEO. But instead, she was like following these rock stars around like Jerry Lee Lewis. And she started working as a nude model. And from that, she moved on to this very lucrative mail order porn business, which was a bit of a scam because she would you know, she would advertise in the backs of nudie magazines and men would write to her and, you know, for a couple bucks she would send them a picture of whatever and then she might, she would reel them in to the point where if they were gullible enough, she might, oh, I don't know, get engaged to them and get written into their wills, which happened at least once. Rolling Stone said, depending on the source, she had between seven and a hundred (laughs) husbands. So, whatever, you know. Not whatever. I can't get one. She has 700. Good for her. Share your ways. Tell us the tips and tricks. Well, the tips and tricks are large collection of snapshots of boobs, etc. Not all hers. She would find out, you know, she had big ones. She had small ones, short ones, tall ones. <laughs> it was the Dr. Seuss of boob pictures. <laughs> yes. All the places they would All go the in the mail. Um, so, so this was kind of like a low-level scam, you know, She whatever. She was pretending to be Margaret. Who cares? Um, but she made a lot of wealth with it, enough to buy herself two homes. She enlisted her husband. He would be writing these really dirty letters out for her. She liked them handwritten for a personal touch. So he, she had him writing things about, I don't, I can't even, I'm not even gonna say on the podcast, just read the book. It's just like, what if my dad listens to this? I can't say the sentence that I'm thinking. <laughs> it's in my book. Um, but okay, so, so she's kind of living this low level grifter life, but she's still like, I'm gonna marry a movie star. I'm gonna marry a movie star. She moves to Hollywood. You know, she's in her, 40s now I think which let's be real is not an age Hollywood loves in a woman she's you know starting to think about Botox she's stressing about her weight she's dyeing her hair blonde and she meets an aging movie star Robert Blake so he's like this kind of tough guy he was in some tv show you know he's he's maybe like our grandmother's era kind of a tough guy and by the time she meets him his star is on the decline so he's kind of the perfect catch so she seduces him she gets pregnant even though she tells him she won't and manages to convince him to marry her like very sort of manipulates forces blackmails him into marrying her he starts to loathe her here's where the story gets really sad up until then it's like you're kind of rooting for Bonnie because she's just she just is so ambitious and bold you know to use a word I've already used and just like she's kind of sad like she can't really get her life together but she's trying so hard she's such a dreamer you know she takes long baths and she's on the phone for hours with her sister about how she's gonna marry a movie star she finally does it and it turns horrible he he, he just hates her like he loathes her the quotes this man says about this woman and In his, I don't even want to say defense because we are really mad at him, even though he's still alive. So we're a little bit scared of him. I mean, she did truly entrap him into getting married. Um, And she she truly deceived him, lied to him, etc. So there's that. But I mean, he... The visceral hate that you can feel that he had for her is chilling to this day. Bonnie, at several points, tells her family, he's going to kill me. Like... (gasps) 
Bonnie knows something. Oh, I have chills. I have chills. And it's just so sad. Um, but she is still kind of trying to make this fairy tale Hollywood ending work for her, like really desperately. She's sending out Christmas cards that are like, you know, happy holidays from my happy celebrity husband and I, <laughs> even though she's living in the bungalow in the back of his house. And Robert Blake, he has this bodyguard type figure who has a list, like a grocery list that's like duct tape, hammer, bleach, oh, no. you know, it's like, Ooh. it's that kind of thing. Um, and so fast forward to a balmy spring night. So it's 2001. Bonnie and Robert go to, you know, his favorite Italian joint, have a dinner, walk to the parking lot. And Robert says, and I, this is a little bit funny just because of the audacity of people. He goes, oh, I have to go back into the restaurant. I forgot my gun. Oh, why is he carrying a gun? Oh, because Bonnie Lee has so many enemies that someone might try to kill her. So he has to carry a gun to protect her because he loves her so much. So that's his reasoning. While he is in the restaurant, someone, and to this day we don't officially know who, comes up to the car and shoots Bonnie Lee in the head. And the police later, from just how the crime scene is, they theorize that whoever it was, she knew them because she's not, she wasn't like trying to get away, you know? Yeah. Right. So Robert Blake comes back out and like sees the crime scene we think and then runs back in and is like something terrible has happened and like there's a nurse who runs out and and basically I find it so tragic like the last people like holding her and helping her are strangers and so there's this big trial and it's honestly it's similar to the OJ Simpson trial in that big trial but he is found innocent but then he's found um What's it called in a civil trial? Like libel in a civil trial later? Exactly yeah. how mm-hmm. OJ was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to right. this day, um, no one's been charged for her death. But the last thing I'll say is she was buried in a, in a cemetery in Hollywood, you know, filled with other, filled with celebrities. So it was kind of an ending in that, that part of it, I think she would have liked. And she was famous then, you know. She was in the papers. She was everywhere. She got... But she wanted. I mean, I I like that we talk. I mean, in those in those stories, I I like talking about them on our show because it's like it gives them a little bit of what they were seeking when they were yeah. living. Right? Is yeah. like notoriety and for their story to be shared. Yeah. It's that like it's that it's just so interesting, especially like whether it's like spiritualism or whether it's a case like this. It's like using using the thing that you're oppressed by, your femininity to get ahead which I think is Mm -hmm. just you know it's so creative and also sometimes the only path to get ahead in a time when you're not valued right yeah she used her sexuality you Mm -hmm. know like very explicitly she used her she used like she had she was in so many abusive relationships and she I don't know what it what you would say she used to just kind of like keep going and like you know divorce like divorce Mm -hmm. the bastard and keep going like she she did that a number of times which in a way feels like a some feminine strength there totally 
thank you so much for sharing that story. And also just thank you for talking to us today. We had oh so much gosh, fun. It was so fun. Amazing. It was so fun. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> and we have to thank you for your books. Oh, I love your book. Well, I'm I'm in the midst of confident women and I love it. And I, I, frankly, I've got to go because I've got to go finish it right now. <laughs> and also we have Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History. And I have to be honest with you, we're going to read it and we're going to pick stories so that we can tell them on our podcast later because oh, awesome. you are encyclopedia <laughs> of killers and con women, which let's be honest, at Crime of a Lifetime, that's what we're into. <laughs> they're already great stories, but you tell them so well and with such flair. They're very, very dare I say, fun to read, even the very upsetting ones. So thank you you for that. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh, you're welcome back anytime. Come back and hang out with us. And if not, we'll meet in Midtown and grab a drink. (gasps) Perfect. (laughs) Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.